Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey, what's up, y'all? I'm Taryn Finley, a senior culture reporter at HuffPost, and this is I Know That's Right, a weekly podcast about the latest in culture, entertainment, and trending conversations. Get ready, because we're going to a place where mainstream news and the wild west of internet culture collide. From the news that makes us say, I know that's right, to the mess that you know is as dead wrong and still holding on to those Thanksgiving leftovers. Throw them away, y'all. I'm breaking down the week that was, and we've got a lot to talk about. Then, as always, I'll bring in a guest for an in-depth conversation. This week is all about problematic faves and the reason why we just can't let go of some celebs. Journalist Ruth Etiesse Samuel is going to help us break it down. I ain't sweetie, but this is I know that's right. I know that's right. Woo, y'all! So we made it to the part of the year where ain't nobody trying to work and time feels all made up. But news on the street don't stop, and that's where I come in. So let's get into it. You know, I got three headlines for you this week. My first up is. The I Know That's Right of the Week, and that goes to Kiki Palmer. Period. The actor and singer hosted and performed at the BT Soul Train Awards, which aired on Sunday. And y'all, she did one hell of a job. But that's no surprise, of course. I mean, baby, this is Kiki Palmer, okay? <laughs> but keep in mind that this show was not live, but taped a week after news broke about Kiki Palmer's domestic violence allegations against ex-boyfriend Darius Jackson. She currently has a restraining order issued against Darius in temporary full custody of their son, Leotis. We were all watching to see how and if Kiki would touch on this and she absolutely nailed it in the most Kiki Palmer way possible. She looked good. She brought joy, laughter, and she didn't let the production hiccups like that god-awful California wind stop her. She did one bit that played on the family drama and that viral leaked phone call of her mom calling Darius anything and everything but a child of God. Listen to Kiki's mom playfully go off about having to watch her son while she hosts the show. Sharon don't play okay but jokes aside the most powerful moment for me had to be Kiki performing her song Ungorgeous off her recent album titled Big Boss. 
it felt like the song spoke to what she experienced in her previous relationship and her resilience coming out of it and she sounded so damn good check it out It really feels like Kiki Palmer is rising up from the ashes here and taking her story and taking the news and the chatter and all the bullshit that has come with all of this in stride. And it really is just so inspiring and heartwarming to see. She even gave us a little glimpse of Leotis ahead of the show and just to see her doing well makes me so happy run don't walk to check out this full performance so proud of you kiki you doing a damn thing girl i know that's right a story that i don't think is quite right this week is a potential lawsuit that netflix may be facing may not i don't know y'all let me know i know y'all watch squid games I know y'all know Squid Games, right? So more than 142 million of y'all across the world watched it in the first month on the planet. So if you didn't watch it, you probably heard about it. So now there's a reality competition show that's based on the same premise of 456 adults playing a series of children's games with each other until one person is left standing at the end and wins this huge pot of money. The reality show is actually called Squid Games The Challenge. I'm not gonna lie. I watched it. And it's pretty entertaining. So, you know, in the scripted show, those eliminated were killed. And obviously the reality show isn't going to go that far. But apparently people were getting hurt and suffering through inhumane conditions while filming. Players have come out since it premiered saying specifically that the red light, green light game was multiple hours long, not five minutes as it appears on the show. They also note that they filmed in bad conditions. They weren't fed or given bathroom breaks regularly, and they had to compete in the freezing cold. Here's what player number 358, a.k.a. Grandma Gone Wild on TikTok, had to say. We had, the game had to have been at least nine hours. It had to have been. Wow. And remember... It was below freezing. We were, my, the, my, my feet were numb, my hands were blue, constant snot dripping from my nose, constantly just shivering the whole time. I have never been that cold that long in my life. Now, this isn't the first time that Netflix has been threatened with legal action over their reality shows. And as of now, there are at least two pending Love is Blind lawsuits. But I do want us to put our critical thinking hat on not only for this story but just the concept of this show i didn't think that anything could get more dystopian than the original scripted but here we are we all watched the original show and saw inhumane it can get to make hundreds of people compete for money for entertainment purposes i mean the whole message of the original show was to make a point about how easily society can actually turn people into capital that's not weird to y'all that we have a whole reality show based off of that premise? That's weird. And the cherry on top is at the end of the original show, we see the main character, player 456, about to miss his daughter's birthday for the second year in a row to put an end to the Squid Game, even though he won because of all the emotional trauma and witnessing 455 people die before him. 
in order for him to get that money. I mean, of course, like it's it's fiction. But what about this makes you want to go out and compete on the show? A better question to the creators and producers. What about this makes you want to make this a reality show based on the original concept? I hate that people got hurt and suffered emotional distress. That's honestly terrible. And I'm in no way saying that they shouldn't seek some type of restitution or sue or whatever. A reality TV version of this show just wasn't worth all of that, especially considering how ugly the economy has been. And people are honestly drowning in debt and need some type of hope. So I get why people went on this show i'm just looking at mainly the creators of the show kind of funny hopefully there's not a second season of this reality show like let's leave it to the scripted version y'all especially if you're not even going to be honest with the viewers about what actually happened netflix y'all have done that before i'm i'm looking at y'all funny no more squid games in in real life let's let's leave it to the show Life doesn't need to imitate art more than it already does, y'all. Now for the dead wrong of the week, and that goes to all of y'all dragging ESPN reporter Malika Andrews' name for filth just for doing her job. If you didn't know, Malika Andrews is a journalist for NBA Today. She's gotten some hate in the past, but she's been the topic of discussion on social media this week after sports fans called her out for alleged racial bias in her reporting. Back in June, Malika caught hell from NBA fans after she raised a question about how Brandon Miller's connection to a homicide case factored into how teams were looking at him as a candidate. Folks called her weird, negative, a whole bunch of anti-black woman comments, and it honestly was really ugly. Miller wasn't criminally charged, but he's since been named a co-defendant in a wrongful death lawsuit. Now, Malika's colleague, Stephen A. Smith, defended her when she was getting all that hate. Take a listen. She had an obligation to ask those questions. She did her job. If she doesn't do her job, she's off the air. Fast forward to this past weekend. Fans have been putting pressure on ESPN and Malika to cover OKC Thunder players Josh Giddy's alleged inappropriate relationship with the 15-year-old girl. Now, Malika ended up covering that story on Monday. By itself, I don't see an issue with pressing journalists to do better. I mean, y'all know news coverage can be biased and the public should feel empowered to call out outlets when they're slipping or undercovering or overcovering something or talking about something wrong in general. Here's my issue. People are comparing how she covered Brandon Miller to how she covered Josh Giddy. Former NFL player Des Bryant chimed in. He tweeted that Malika, quote, went out of her way to crucify Brandon Miller on draft day and called her a puppet and essentially said that she doesn't deserve respect from players. <sighs> Y'all, a couple of things. One, we have got to put media literacy in classes, y'all. Like, it's getting out of hand. And two, this isn't about Josh Giddy. Y'all have more smoke for Malika Andrews than y'all have for Josh Giddy. I want y'all to be honest about that. Y'all have more smoke for Malika than y'all do for the legacy outlets that have no intention on fixing racial bias in their newsrooms. 
And most importantly, you are more concerned with holding this woman accountable than holding your faves accountable for causing real and direct harm to others, allegedly. Now, on the regular, I don't follow Malika's reporting because, you know, sports ball, I, I watch the game. I don't watch Sports Center that much. But I do know enough to know that this isn't an anomaly. Y'all did this with Bill Cosby, too, when y'all asked why Harvey Weinstein wasn't being held accountable, but Bill was. And the gag there was that both men were very much being held accountable and y'all just weren't following the news. It was more about holding on to this precious image you had of seeing Bill Cosby as America's dad. Hell, a man even tried to check me while I was covering the R. Kelly trial in Brooklyn, telling me that I was just out there to tear a black man down. Many of y'all really don't even care about justice. Y'all just don't want your faves, your comfort, and your own points of view to be challenged. But if we don't have that challenge and systems of accountability, people, famous or not, will continue to think that their behavior that hurts other people is okay. Getting back to it, we should absolutely have room to critique those reporting the news. But those of you attacking Malika should really ask yourselves why this woman doing her job bothers you more than the alleged abuse and violence that she's reporting on. Just something to chew on. All right, y'all, that's it for the headlines this week. I want to hear what y'all have to say about these stories. Hit me up on socials at underscore tearing it up and let's continue the conversation over there. But remember, keep it cute, okay? Next up, I'll be bringing in culture reporter Ruth Etiesit Samuel to talk about our problematic faves, stand culture, and how our relationships with celebs are changing. Stay put because more I Know That's Right is coming. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome back to I Know That's Right, y'all. Okay, y'all. I think we all have a problematic fave. Don't lie. I know you do. I know I have a few. As much as I don't care for and I don't want to hear her political opinions, I'm not going to lie to y'all. I turn up every time Hellcats and SRTs plays by Sexy Red. And ooh, I know some of y'all, I know the girls is going to eat me up about this as much as I hate to admit it because he is an absolute menace. We'll never forgive you for what you did to see Era, And honestly, for a lot of the shit that you said, I cannot quit some of future's music if you play mask off right now i'm i'm raving but what exactly does it mean to have a problematic fave can your problematic fave be too problematic and where's the line between having a problematic fave and oh now i'm deeply judging you in your character for supporting this person or thing 
Also, how has stand culture and cancel culture changed our parasocial relationships with celebrities? There are so many questions that I have and that I think we all have and that we try to answer on the internet around problematic faves and all of this. And I'm bringing in a very special guest this week, HuffPost culture reporter. And one of my favorite skeptical Gemini's is in the building to help us break it down. Y'all, please help me welcome Ruth Etiesit Samuel. Hey, girl. Hi, Taryn. Thank you so much for having me. How you doing? I'm doing well. I'm making it. I'm trying not to cringe over the thought of my problematic fave. So, Oh, girl. You know, sometimes we just have to, I guess, grin and bear it. And one, a, a big reason I wanted to have you on the show is because I really enjoy hearing you talk about your problematic faves. I feel like you mention them a lot um, during our team meetings, just in conversation. And this piece that you wrote, I want to specifically talk about um, this piece that you wrote in HuffPost series, breaking down how cancel culture has changed over the years is aptly titled. If you refuse to quote unquote, cancel your quote unquote, problematic fave, then what? And in this piece, you examine the mental battle between seeing a celeb or entity that you have an emotional tie to and learning that they've done or said something offensive and controversial in the decision to stick beside them. It's a great piece, y'all. Everyone, please check it out. If you haven't already, Ruth is here to educate us. Listen to the podcast, then go check it out or check it out while you listen to the podcast. Press pause, do what you need to do. But in the meantime, Ruth, for those who do not know, can you go ahead and break down what a problematic fave is? In layman terms, a problematic fave could be any celebrity, public figure, or fictional character that you continue to hold dear uh, in spite of their ethically or morally questionable stances, actions, or accusations leveled against them. Um, and I think it's hard because everyone has a different line, a different boundary of what is, what is considered too problematic to continue engaging with media, right? For some people, um, you know, domestic violence and sexual assault are their hard lines, whereas other people, um, fat phobia and colorist comments are are their limits. And, you know, one might argue that one is tangibly worse than the other, whereas another might say, actually, these are both perpetuating systemic violence, and we need to be very cognizant of um, begetting and kind of overlooking this behavior. And so, yeah. I think that line is is really interesting. And one that, you know, like you said, is kind of hard to define because it's not necessarily universal for a lot of people. However, you know, one would say like, oh, if this actor, you know, did something physically harmful or sexually harmful to someone else that isn't as bad as if someone said something. But, you know, like you said, perpetuating these ideas lead to actions and lead to a culture where certain actions are okay. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm really interested in in breaking that down with you. Um, but first, I, I do want to kind of see, and you talk about this in the piece, what is it about the entertainment that we like passing a, a character test? Why Why is that important? And when did that become important? Because it doesn't it wasn't always important. I mean, of course, you know, social media, internet, and kind of the visibility in us knowing more about our faves plays into that. But yeah. Absolutely. 
And, you know, I always think of the old adage, like you are what you eat. Right. And I think it, that has kind of translated itself to entertainment. Are you what you consume? Is it reasonable to tether your morality to the art you consume? What does that say about you if you shift the goalposts? Does that mean you're morally weak, et cetera? And I think um, there was a real shift in that sort of personal association um, as the Me Too movement started to uh, gain traction. Talking to Elizabeth Nordenholt and Kristen Bennett of the you know famous podcast your fave is problematic that like took off in the 2010s ish they said that that was really like a a groundswell moment in which people were kind of reckoning with their limits and what does it mean to revere a piece of art that's been created by someone who is possibly very heinous and what became this sort of internal discussion and reckoning you know has since been transmuted to now a sort of like you know call out culture Um, which is not necessarily bad per se, but now it's becoming a a litmus test for the ethics of your friend, right? Like, oh, you support so-and-so? It's like, maybe I do, maybe I don't, but what does that say about me, right? And so I think that has been a big moment um, in which that association sort of took off. And I think, you know, as Elizabeth said so well in the piece, the, the thing about media is that it evokes a sort of emotion and deep personal connection. It means something to you. And so when that significance is stained um, by some sort of impurity, right? Be it a crime, be it an allegation or whatever. How does that make you feel? And I think parasocial relationships have so much to do with that. So I'm here in Atlanta visiting uh, my boyfriend's family for Thanksgiving. And I think it's really interesting the conversations that I'm hearing his 70-year-old sister have. And um, we were at dinner the other day and she was talking about how a friend fell out and got into an argument with another friend that she had because she went to eat at McDonald's or Starbucks or one of the restaurants that are on the list of restaurants that folks are calling on to boycott because they're funding the genocide against Gaza. And so it it just is very much a different conversation, a different way of looking at the world that I remember having um, and conversations that I remember having around, you know, the things that we consume and, and the entertainment that we consume when I was in high school. And it's really, you know, insightful to see how Gen Z and, you know, younger folks have really taken on a different kind of responsibility in the things that they decide to support and the things that we all decide to, to support. And I, I just thought that that was just like such a, a, a moment where I was like, wow, like things have changed so much, you know? And you said she's 17. She's 17. Yeah. She's so we're 17. the same generation. Yeah. I'm yeah. Gen Z. Um, my older brother would be considered a cusper, like Gen Z millennial, but we are in the same generation. Yeah. And we're, we're having those conversations. And on the note of like fictional characters, I'll never forget um, reading Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's Americana. And I loved Americana and Half of the Yellow Sun. And then reading her transphobic comments and hearing her double down was so, so disappointing. And I will never have the same association with those books Moreover, on the note of, of boycotting, I have to bring this up, Beyonce, right? Um, love Beyonce to, to, to the day I die. I adore that woman. I think she's done so much. 
And also, right, we, it, it's not lost on me that after releasing The Gift, right, an African-inspired soundtrack album, she's doing a collaboration with Tiffany and Co. And, and sporting their blood diamonds, right? And now she's come under fire for possibly showing, you know, Renaissance the film in Israel. And we still don't know what the mobilization behind that is looking like, if it's going to come to fruition. Um, a lot of these things say coming soon, but it raises the question of... <laughs> Is there anything such as ethical consumption under capitalism, right? And that can be extended to entertainment. Is is that possible? And I think it's it's now like, okay, but now you know better, so do better. What is and what does that look like? And I think that's the hard part. I think a lot of us as fans, I think that the way that we have to interrogate who we choose to support has also, you know, tripped a lot of people up. And it's also, you know, made folks double down and say, you know, hey, I don't care that Beyonce wore blood diamonds. I'm going to stand 10 toes down and be a part of the beehive and be, you know, unapologetic in my support for her. And, you know, I'm not going to lie. I definitely was at the Renaissance tour and, you know, go up for her. But she also was a problematic fave. And I think that there isn't as much especially room on social media sometimes to really talk about and break down the nuance of our relationships and how two things can exist at once and like hey I can be very disappointed in your actions as a fan and still hold you accountable while also understanding that there are certain parts of your of your music of of your of your film of whatever you do as an entertainer that I enjoy but also how do you draw that line like I think there are a lot of people who may have you know celebs that they idolize in a way where they can do no wrong you know and I think you've touched on so much and as you said, I was at the Renaissance tour. I've given B so much of my money. It is unbelievable. Too much. Um, <laughs> Too right. much. I, when she came I out with that perfume, back. right. When she came out with that perfume, I said, that's great. I will not be buying. I'm going to be holding my purse very closely to me. Um, but yeah, I think that lack of nuance on the internet is precisely what was the catalyst for Elizabeth and Kristen creating that podcast, right? They're like, we want to create something that will foster the sort of discussions that we're having in our, at our kitchen, at a kitchen table. Um, and so that was, you know, the impetus for your fave is problematic. And like you said, um, just stand culture and, and just the pressure of community and groupthink and things of that nature. I talked to um, Dr. Muhu, who he is a professor at the University of Texas at San Antonio, and he specializes in talking about parasocial relationships and parasocial deterioration and, you know, talking about how group and community and fandom and what it offers can honestly be a catalyst for people to act out, right? You will have those people who are um, exhibiting violent behavior online to defend their faith, which we have seen from certain groups. Um, I've seen it from Barb's. I've seen it from other groups. Um, but I think Stitch, who I interviewed, they are a um, media scholar and they've written in numerous publications about Blackness and fandom, particularly in the K-pop space. And they articulated it so well. They said, it's it's not the fact that you like it. It's not what you like. It's how you like it. And, you know, they were talking about their adoration for BTS and BTS has its own sort of um, skeletons in the closet with regards to anti-blackness. And they were saying, I would never tell someone like, oh, you have to like BTS. Like if they have a hard line 
that's their hard line. I get it. And I definitely I I know that th- that isn't a, a blanketed statement that Stitch said, but you know there are people who, at least in my eyes, I'm like, no, you can't and shouldn't like them, and you shouldn't be supporting them. You know, I I think of R. Kelly and the whole movement to to mute him, which you know was a great effort. But unfortunately, he's not muted in a lot of places, especially in a lot of places in black communities. Literally every summer, I still hear somebody's auntie and uncle playing him at a cookout, riding down the street. And, you know, I think about how stomach turning it is for me to even engage in conversation with someone who wants to defend him as like, oh, he's R&B legacy. He's this, that and the third. And it's like, no, I can't see him as anything other than a predator. Exactly. Than I feel, a serial rapist. I feel the same way about Chris Brown, right? With the number of abuse and domestic violence allegations he has under his belt, I can't see him for more than that, right? And, you know, I think something that Stitch brought up is is being able to, rather than blindlessly defend your fave, right? And ignore and sweep everything under the rug, you can speak to the impact that they've had in their specific realm and specific media and also still actively call out what they have done. And I think it's hard to hold space for that sort of cognitive dissonance and sort of straddle that line. It's it's tough. It's tough because I know for a fact there's certain artists and I'm like, I'm not tapping on you again. No. Like at all. Like you're literally canceled. And I'm not even just saying it in the white co-opted way that we use now. Like I'm saying it literally in the Nino Brown way. Cancel that bitch. You're through. You're over. It's a wrap. It's a wrap. <laughs> but I I do want to like shift gears again and, and talk about your problematic faves because I've listed a few at the top, but I wanna I wanna know. Girl, I know. I see that face. I see. I'm like I I get it. I get it. But, you know, I think that there are few people who have platforms, who are visible, who are active, that don't have some type of problematic nature about them. I mean, you know, we're humans. We're flawed. So it feels normal right now. Maybe maybe not, you know, a few years ago. I feel like socially it might have been a little bit more like, uh to have a problematic fave but yeah who are yours let me preface this by saying (laughs) (laughs) i'm weak already as i say in the piece there's not a single piece of media that does not have some sort of stain associated with it from scandal to dan Harmon's community um and moreover i think something that elizabeth and Kristen from your fave is problematic that we talked about that didn't quite make into the piece i think it did was the fact that they might look back at some podcast episodes and be like, our opinions have shifted, actually. So let me just say, first and foremost, that this is subject to change. Things may happen further down the line that I'm like, ooh, no. Yeah, no, this is indefensible. First and foremost, Big Lotto, Big Remix. She is my problematic fave. I'm a real um, ass, rich ass bitch from the South. south. <laughs> as, as a child, as a Black woman raised mostly in Georgia, the woman can spit. She can rap. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Ten toes down. And I had given an interview about this um, on the record, and it's an OK player, and I was actually looking at it, about the name shift. I remember talking about the fact that that name, the M word, 
was something that she came up with when she was a teenager, um, largely when she was ascending on the rap game, the reality show. And it is unclear to me personally how much of an influence her father had in giving her that name to lean into that light skinness, right? Versus it's something that she came up with naturally. I think the issue that I had was weaponizing that name as a means of colorism, because allegedly she has called darker skinned Black women a roach before, and also giving power to people that are not of that community to say the word. And what I mean by that is that um, when I was talking about her name change, I referenced uh, a tweet that I just tried to look up, but it's now gone. But it was when Wes Lowry interviewed Trevor Noah for a GQ cover. And as he was promoting the article, right, he was like, oh, me and Trevor Noah chopped it up. This is me paraphrasing. Me and Trevor Noah chopped it up. We talked about being M-words. And people were like, excuse me? <laughs> like, you said that in 4K? Yeah. And he had to come back and correct himself, which the tweet is no longer. But he was like, do y'all realize that this is something that biracial children, we joke about the term, like, amongst ourselves. Wow. That's a very illuminating moment. It adds a lot more context. And so... You know, if she wants to call herself that, fine. But to give other people power to do so who are not of said community and then to weaponize it as a means of perpetuating colorism, no. Do I still listen to her? Yes. Yes. But will I call her out every single time? Absolutely. I think one of the hardest parts was to see the sort of conversation take place on Clubhouse, but she was not given the chance to speak. So everyone was speaking for her um, because I would love to see her address it and see where her understanding of the issue stems from, if it's there, if she understands what was done wrong. Now she's changed it to Lotto. Do we still know the origins? Yes, but, you know, step by step. Lotto on by itself makes more sense. And, and even back then when, you know, pre the clubhouse conversation, we were all calling her Lotto because we refused, well, not all of us, but a lot of us refused to call her that but I think that you know you hit on um a really good point of making sure that like if you're gonna have a fave that you know is problematic like let them know like it raises questions for me right I'm a lighter skinned black woman what does that say about how I engage with my darker skinned best friends right am I perpetuating colorism um and I think once again it's being able to be honest and also like how do you move in the real world right are you actively calling it out are you calling out your privilege are you um working to talk about colorism right in a way that is earnest and honest about the privilege that i hold um and i think it's it's becoming even more of a discussion i think it's honestly been a perennial discussion particularly in like arts and media right Zen- from zendaya to ice spice to comparisons with flo millie and um baby tate so mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah absolutely um i i think about you know this connection of like from standom to having um, pro- or having problematic faves. So we know standom originally, you know, the the combination of stalker and fan and having this crazed, you know, I'm literally going to go up for this person, for this entity by any means necessary kind of idea. But, you know, a lot of people who, I don't want to say normal, <laughs> even though I want to so much because because I think when I think of stands now, I think of the barbs and there's nothing normal about what they're doing over there, doxing people and, and doing all that bullshit. But people who don't go to those limbs and don't <laughs> harass other people in order to prove a point about their faves, you know, like regular people 
call themselves stands now and and i think about how stand culture the normalizing of stand culture how much of it has fueled space for how we connect as regular people to art and the art and entertainment that we love even when those issues and offenses and and the bullshit arises. And on the note of what you said about the origin of the term stitch, they said that most people who consider themselves stands are not going to the extent of Stan in that Eminem music video, right? Like impersonating him, driving off of a cliff. Like it's people who couldn't, oh, I stand this person. Like they're not engaging in that behavior that Stitch said that's like a 10% thing, right? And talking to um, Dr. Who at Texas A&M San Antonio, he talked about kind of the origin of parasocial relationships, right? 1956, and just talking about the sort of imaginary relationships with media figures or media characters, right? And something that he noted is that something about characters and figures is that they're always there for you 24-7, right? There's not a sort of rejection or dejection that you might face from a real person trying to facilitate that connection, right? Um, They're always there. You can look them up. You can read a book. You can uh, engage in the Pottermore community in in the case of Harry Potter, right? And that can become sort of a a conduit for connection with people. Um, Something that I don't think made into the story, but that he and I talked about was, you know, when he immigrated to the States, you're trying to make friends, find your footing. And a lot of his peers are making these sort of pop culture references that he didn't quite understand. And so he had to get caught up and, you know, develop a relationship to these TV characters, be it friends, be it cheers, whatever, and then bring that back as a means to facilitate connection with friends IRL, right? Mm. And so that it's a means of finding community. It's a means of connection. But with respect to how we engage with media, I thought it was super fascinating when Doctor Who pointed out that, you know, the more you love a character, the more excuses you're going to make for them. And the more forgiveness you are willing to dole out, the more you love a media figure, the more you love a person, right? Um, other people, they'll be lying in the way and be like, uh-huh, I always knew that person was raggedy. I always knew there was something off about them. Whereas the people that love them would be like, well, they just weren't themselves that day. They just, they just, you know, had a moment. They were under the influence, et cetera. You know why I'm laughing? Because this sounds like, this sounds like men with their mothers. Yep. This sounds yep. like men with their mothers. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> and and the part that's fascinating is that we often do not consider cishet men stands. We often talk about women and queer men when cishet men are absolutely stands oh, the, the way that they go up for drake right the way that they go up for drake i i remember y'all were putting those hearts in y'all caesars y'all have barrettes at the end of your cornrows now i see what y'all come are on. doing y'all are stands come on now come on now it's insane to be like well walk with me walk with me he was he was trying to say that i'm not walking i'm actually sprinting in the opposite direction like i'm not you know elon musk stands come on now like it's just <gasps> oh my god yes <laughs> it's, it's really wild the way that people will go up for apartheid clyde is absolutely insane and so that's just something from my observation but broadly speaking the the sort of back to your first question how parasocial relationships impact how we engage with media it it makes us more quick to forgive it uh fosters a means of connection with other people and honestly kind of is a cure for loneliness, right? Um, You have a community of people you can go back to. And I think that has been particularly exacerbated by the pandemic, for sure. Yeah, yeah. That's so interesting. That's so interesting, especially because like not only 
along with you know the the long term symptoms of the pandemic, the long terms like mental health, social symptoms of the pandemic that we really aren't talking about or addressing. But y'all, like we're all suffering, and I, like, everybody needs to know that. But also, you know, this symptom of you know living in a capitalistic society just breeds individualism, and I think we're all clawing and gnawing for some type of connection and a lot of times that does end up being some toxic ass incel connection and that is scary that like that honestly is is very scary and i think it's so fascinating because i often what i've seen in my experience and i don't know exactly the data to support this but the people that are on the brunt end of the aggression right are often like black women and femmes and black people at large um, we saw that with the woman behind for Harriet engaging with Barb's. She had to oh, seek legal Kimberly action. Foster. There we go. Had to seek legal action. Um, we've seen that in many other instances. I have been the target of Barb's before. So has Phil Lewis. And so I just find it so fascinating. And it was, of course, due to the dispute between Nikki and Lotto. The way that we engage with media and you know with our like parasocial relationships in general has changed but also the way that celebrities themselves engage with us and with their fans and and, you know with the public has changed too you know and I, I think often about Doja Cat going off on her fans even though her fans were very much trying to hold her accountable of like you're with this raggedy ass racist man like how are what do you mean we're not going to say something and you know like very much had diss tracks like real diss tracks on her last album scarlet um which i'm not gonna lie scarlet was was a banger <laughs> like girl you know you dead wrong for the shit that you've been for the shit you've been doing and saying but that album it bangs okay and then of course like so many celebrities just aren't even talking to us anymore on social media, you know? So like, how have you seen celebrity in the way that celebrities engage with the public change because of our parasocial relationships? I think I always joke and say that, you know, let's bring back media training. Let's, let's go back to the era in which I didn't know so much about y'all. I think of that. um, I think it's like a New York times opinion headline. It's like, we should all know less about each other. Um, that's so fascinating with Doja, a broken clock is right twice a day. Like, yes, is she correct <laughs> that parasocial relationships may pe- make people too overfamiliar and friendly with folks that they don't know? Yes. But Shorty, we're not talking about that. We're, we're asking you, why are you engaging in this relationship? Why were you showing your feet in racial chat rooms? What's, what's going on, babes? It's not, the math's not mathing. And so, yeah, and another person I brought up is Lizzo in the piece. Mm, um, mm. I haven't really followed or kept up, but I'm sure she released a statement after the allegations of um, harassment and, and labor abuse from her dancers and whatnot. But I think it's fascinating because we we put so much into these celebrities and what they mean for us, right? Um, I think we attach so much to them because representation can make you feel a certain way. And people who claim that they want to be role models for young girls and people of different communities. And so it's hard. I think, you know, some folks are still following them. Some folks are still engaging with her content. 
Me personally, I haven't really kept up except waiting for more legal developments, but it, it kind of raises questions about do they have to answer to us? Like y'all are also human. What is the expectation, especially since we're paying dollars to support you? Are you beholden to us? Are you just human? What does that look like? What is that dynamic? I'm not sure if I'm seeing a groundswell. I feel like the younger generation, some artists are very quiet, like Olivia Rodrigo, Taylor Swift. I mean, I don't know if she actively speaks in such a way that warrants fans descending on her producer's wedding because she's present, right? She doesn't speak in the same way that let's say Renee Rapp from the Sex Lives of College Girls does. Renee is a fireball, very funny, always loves to kiki, et cetera. Um, but different artists have very different modes of, of navigating. Zendaya doesn't follow anybody on Instagram. She doesn't do any of that, right? So I don't know if I'm seeing a particular trend, but I am noticing how certain starlets kind of navigate. It, it does feel like now if you're going to, you know, pursue some type of celebrity that you want, you know, to climb up a ladder and it for it to be lucrative, that you have to at least be some type of a decent person or the or the public has to perceive you as a decent person. And if not, you just have to go full anti-villain, anti-hero, like full villain, full like you know, I'm I'm going to say and do this and, and stand 10 toes down. And, you know, like people are going to pick their poison and, you know, kind of follow where they want to. You know, I think about that with a lot of these like Manosphere podcasts. You know, I think about that with Joe Budden and Academic Stance. It's really interesting seeing, especially because of the growing definition of celebrity. And that was something we even talked about it colloquially. I was with my girls at a book club. And I feel like parasocial relationships with influencers are even worse because <laughs> with a celebrity, they could have been a child star. They could have been in the circuit for a very long time. Olivia Rodrigo, she was in Bizarre Bark on Disney Channel, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. But she was on Disney Channel before Rolling Stone, before all of this, right? Or they had a special talent that kind of catapulted them into stardom. Influencers, not all of them have a special talent. They're just very regular people who were just showing their lives and there was something aspirational about it. And then boom, they ascended to stardom and influence and having a following, right? There are certain ones that come to mind that, you know, there's nothing particularly special about them. They're just funny, they're just cheeky, who knows, right? And I think it's worse because they are so regular for lack of a better term <laughs> that people think they can really make judgments about their lives, about who they are, because they're like, well, that could have been me. So why are you not why are you not approaching this this way? I can I can do that if I put more time and money into content creation, which by all means you can, right? But some people come to mind, Monet McMichael, Brittany Broski, several people just that a lot of people make judgments about and whatever. And these are just some that come to mind because I think I'm not certain they have both kind of been under fire for not speaking about what's happening in Gaza. And so, um, and people are making inferences based on comments that they're liking in their comment section saying, well, they don't have to speak on it. They don't know. Da, 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 da. And so that's been very, very fascinating to see, especially in the age of like influencing. With this piece, I'm wondering what is the biggest um, uh, surprise takeaway that you had after reporting it out, writing it and, and distributing it to the world? Maybe a couple of things, maybe. Um, Dr. Who, he was saying that the stronger the parasocial relationship, the stronger the person will feel connected to the art, of course, yes, and the person, the, the figure, 
but also the more impacted they'll feel by the parasocial deterioration, right? So that means if a show ends or if, or that's actually the parasocial breakup is when a show ends, but if a show ends or information comes out about an artist, you will feel more and more impacted, but you will also give them more and more grace, which I think is interesting. And then another thing, you know, the term your fave is problematic was not created by Elizabeth and Kristen on the podcast that actually came from a Tumblr page. And the creator of the Tumblr, if I'm pronouncing their name correctly, Liet Kaplan, sort of came out and claimed the page because it was previously anonymous in like 2012. And they wrote a piece in the Times, in the New York Times, just talking about the blog and how they have no plans to delete it. But they look back and they're like, yikes, I was really trying to be a cop on the internet. And I think that's sort of um, growth, but also the admission and the understanding of how culture has shifted, but how they were kind of a catalyst for something broader. I thought that was very fascinating. And they said, they're like, you know, don't cancel me for my teenage blog, but I just know what we all should know by now. And I'm quoting them that no one who has lived publicly online or off has a spotless record. The internet after all never forgets. Um, so I found that really, really fascinating. Their sort of conclusion that they came to within themselves. Um, because I know certain things we're talking about celebrities, right? I can say like between individuals on an interpersonal level, um, there are things that my high school classmates have done that I will never forgive them for. It does not matter. Um, that I think the celebrity and the entertainment machine of it all does kind of create the sort of fissure and a difference. So, yeah. That's a hell of a hell of a thing to to mic drop on. I really appreciate you for taking time to to talk to me about that, Ruth. So I want to pivot real quick. One thing that I love about the internet is that it's teaching me things all the time, like literally all the time. And so each week I share what I learned on the internet and my guest tells me what they've learned. And so I'll go ahead and kick it off. And I learned that the fruit might be my favorite instrument. Andre 3000, his new album, New Blue Sun. It literally is just like several tracks, no words, full of him playing the flute ever so beautifully. Now, uh, a ADHD girly like me, a overstimulated girly like me, a anxiety filled girly like me needs something that is very like low stimuli, very just soothing, almost like white noise, just almost like, okay, we're at a meditation retreat on a deserted island with a coconut full of delicious water on our lap just sunbathing I like I need to feel that every day or I end up becoming a a, a drama queen and a wet cat honestly <laughs> but this this album has showed me the power of the flute so Andre 3000 after 17 years of being ghost and popping up in front of random Best Buys in Union Square and everywhere else playing your flute. Like you have comforted and soothed me and, and it's via flute. Ruth, what did you learn on the internet this week? This week, I learned a lot about how people perceive constructs of race and blackness globally, um, specifically regarding Tyla, the South African artist who has gone viral for her song Water. 
that has been a very difficult conversation to have online because the internet doesn't allow for a lot of nuance. Um, and there are often bad faith arguments loaded in xenophobia or anti-Black Americanness um, that I think people are just not prepared to dissect with with earnestness. Um, but that has been very fascinating to watch. I appreciate you once again for stopping by, Ruth. But also, before we go, let me know what is getting you through the week. Do you have a problematic fave or an unproblematic fave getting you through this week? You know, I've been watching Veep nonstop because Veep, I dare say, it is not a satire or comedy. It's a documentary. And so Veep, and I'm sure it had its problems as well when, you know, it was running. Unfortunately, I did not watch it as it was on air, which I think is wild. Um, so I've gone back and watched it, but I really think it is emblematic of our country. Um, so Veep <laughs> is <laughs> Veep is my go-to. Um, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, that, that woman. Oh, oh my gosh. So yeah, it's been getting me through my week. I'm mad at that. Let the people know where they can find you. All right. So you can find me on Instagram at Ruth on the runway and Twitter at Ruth E. Samuel. And of course, on HuffPost website under my byline, Ruth Etiasset Samuel. Okay. And here on this episode now, thank you, Ruth. I really appreciate you so much. This was so fun. You're always, like I said, you're my favorite skeptical Gemini. We need more of you. Oh my God, thank you. Oh my God. The Gemini slander has gotten out of hand. So I do appreciate this. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right, y'all. That is the show. I have to give another huge, huge thank you to Ruth for joining me this week. And of course, thank you all for tuning in. I always want to know what y'all want to hear on the show. So if there's a topic or a story that you want me to explore, hit me up at underscore tearing it up. This show is produced by ACAST and recorded right here in Brooklyn, baby. Until next time. Bye, y'all. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.